Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Vitaly Golom. He's a partner at Drake Star in the San Francisco office, and he leads the global mo mobility and energy transition team. Vitaly, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a little while. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You were my 10th guest number of years ago, and now you will be probably the 510th-ish episode. Uh, so it's it's kind of cool that there's like about 500 episodes in between this time and, and the last time we chatted. But uh, excited to have you back. I think what you've done in that period of time and what you're doing now, selfishly, I'm super fascinated to learn more about. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. So I was born in Odessa, Ukraine. My family um, were refugees out of the Soviet Union. We immigrated to uh, San Francisco first and then uh, wow. moved uh, quickly after that uh, to Silicon Valley. So I grew up in Cupertino, California, uh, went to college here as well, uh, got started very, very young. Uh, as a teenager, I was the youngest employee of Kinko's. I was also wow. the youngest person to, at that time at least, uh, to have my, get my own mortgage on my uh, before my 19th birthday. So uh, I was eager to grow up, and uh, I did it here in, in Silicon Valley, which is a great place to grow up. And you know, at that point, I didn't really have much context, uh, all the history here. But uh, of course, since then, have been uh, deep in the tech world my whole career. Very cool. So what did you take in university and why? And what got you passionate about tech at an early age? Um, that's a that's a loaded couple of questions. So my my educational background, my degree is in computer and video imaging with a minor in digital audio. Uh, the reason I uh, studied that is because uh, this is something that I was already doing professionally. I was a self-taught designer as a teenager. And cool. um, by the time I finished my degree, I was already running uh, pretty large um, teams in the dot-com days. Uh, with people twice my age uh, reporting to me, they, you know, I, I always had a little, little facial hair. They didn't really realize how young I was, but <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but there, there's a great story about how I couldn't go to Dave and Buster's uh, one night with my engineering team because I was only 20 years old, and they they wouldn't let me in into the bar. <laughs> so, uh, so that's that's how I uh, uh, that's my educational background. How I got started is actually at a uh, I still have my my best friend uh, from from childhood. Uh, his father moved to a company called Paragraph. Um, from Russia to Silicon Valley, and uh, we would be running around the office. We did uh, different computer shows and things as you know, twelve and thirteen year olds, and that's really cool. that's when the bug bit. Um, we also, you know, this is back before World Wide Web. We'd run bulletin board systems on our home computers, so we would uh, stay up all night and uh, you know turn off all the all the ringers so people can dial in to our home modems and you know chat, exchange files, whatever. Back in the day. So that's really where it all started, uh, pre-web. Um, Alex and I then later, when we were both in college, we started a design firm together. Um, um, and then that, that was kind of, you know, second, third business. And kind of that's, that's how I got started in business. Very cool. So walk us through the rest of your career up until Drake Star, probably just with some highlights along the way, because you've done a 
astronomical amount of stuff throughout your career. Yeah, you know, when I when I um, talk to potential investment banking clients these days, I tell them I'm the Benjamin Button of banking because I went kind of backwards <laughs> into it. Usually people start their career in, in investment banking, they'll go to business school, and then they'll become a grunt in investment bank and, you know, work crazy hours and, and learn finance and deal making that way. Um, my career is is quite uh, backwards from that. I started out as a young entrepreneur. Um, when my parents told me in high school, you can do whatever you want as long as you get straight A's. I got straight A's and put on raves in in Oakland. Um, So my my 18th birthday party was uh, 4,000 kids dancing around to electronic music uh, back before it was cool uh, in a a sweaty warehouse. Um, So, you know, I was always very entrepreneurial and um, I got involved in dot-com days. I got recruited into some pretty high-flying companies. Unfortunately, none of them, you know, exited and became billion-dollar companies back then. Otherwise, I'd be in a different trajectory perhaps. But... um, during the dot bomb days, I went back to what I knew well, which was uh, design and uh, the printing industry uh, by way of, of me being involved in Kinko's, which is now FedEx office for those right. who don't remember Kinko's. Um, so I, I ran a printing company that I co-founded um, and then we sold that and I started a design firm that that quickly grew through to uh, three offices. And um, in the agency business, it's a little bit of a grind. Uh, you kind of eat what you kill. You have crazy hours, but you're not really building any kind of goodwill. If you stop selling, you stop earning, and the and agency kind of fades away. It's really a service business. So realizing that after a few years of that grind and you know working with a lot of startups at the time um, and helping them build brands or build build software products or what have you, realizing, hey, I can do this too, um, I decided to start a company called Keen which was the first software as a service e-commerce platform for the graphic arts industry. So what that means is uh, basically shopping carts, very complex shopping carts for the printing world uh, to do um, you know, complex uh, estimates and complex uh, design in the browser, things like that. Um, we were the only venture-backed company in the space. I spent uh, about six years working on that, learned lots. Um, uh, it was a small acquisition at the end. And then I joined uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, whom I got to know through that company um, after HP split into two companies, HP Inc. and HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So I joined HP Inc. to help start the corporate venture arm, HP Tech Ventures. Uh, spent a couple of years there to build that out. Um, by that point, I was heavily involved with a number of accelerators and funds. So I was very much in the venture world as well, uh, b- being a founder, but also being uh, on the investment side of the table. Um, and spent a couple of years at HP. Um, that was a very interesting experience. It was the first time in my career in a large company and uh, dealing with, uh, you know, kind of learning how to navigate the politics and, and everything at, you know, at the top of a, uh, of a uh, Fortune, you know, Fortune 100 company. Sure. And uh, that was quite an experience. Uh, but, you know, I was always an entrepreneur and, and I got an opportunity to kind of split off with a partner and start a, an investment bank and, and potentially start a venture fund of our own. Um, we started the firm GS Capital with a partner. We grew pretty well to a staff of you know small team, and at a certain point, I started losing deals to bigger investment banks in mobility space. Um, and we'll come back to that more, I suppose. But um, I needed a larger platform, so I I joined uh, Drake Star about a year ago in September of uh, 2020, middle of COVID. Um, and merged my practice with uh, with Drake Star. So now I lead the mobility practice uh, globally. We have uh, partners in the U.S., partners in Europe, and um, and I, I also am serving as a CMO of the firm as well with my agency background. So that's kind of a quick and dirty. Um, I published a book uh, about four years ago. I think that's the last time we spoke. 
totally, call yeah. it accelerated startup uh, that book has done well it's been translated now in ukrainian um i obviously have roots there and um it's been used by a number of accelerators and business schools as a textbook for entrepreneurs congrats man that's that's really awesome thanks for that uh, it's been a whirlwind what can yeah, i say no, that that's great so i want to dive a little bit deeper into what exactly does global mobility and energy transition actually mean and and what types of uh stuff are you guys uh partnering on and investing in yeah so as an investment bank we we get hired by companies to sell themselves or buy another company or do some other complex transaction like a corporate carve out meaning you know sell a division of a big company um, we are helpful on raising capital for companies as well. Usually tech investment bankers get involved kind of later stages. So we're not involved, you know, it, it, it would be a bad look for somebody to have, uh, a, an investment banker go and pitch them to seed VCs or series a, that's really up to the, uh, the CEO at that point. Um, but that's, that's kind of what we do as investment bankers. Um, I do some angel investing on the side as well, of course. Um, and as far as the sector that we're in, uh, mobility is everything electric, everything autonomous, and all the infrastructure for it. So the energy transition part of it is the charging networks, the energy generation, all that infrastructure that has to exist for that kind of future mobility to work. And um, I work with companies, you know, on on the road, um, you know, on land, on sea, and in the air. So we're doing some aviation projects as well. Oh, uh, it's been a passion of mine for for a long time. I have I have some some hours in the left seat of a of an airplane. That's awesome. Um, so it's you know it's a normal progression. You get the sports cars, motorcycles, and, and airplanes. That's that's normal for <laughs> sure. us. So um, so yeah. So that that's what we do is we we help companies that are growing very quickly to to take next steps and you know get all the way to public markets in some cases if they are selling themselves to a SPAC. Uh, for example, and we can talk more about how that works. That's that's been kind of quite a quite a buzzword recently. Yeah, no, that that'd be great. I, that was going to be actually my next question. So, do you want to maybe tell us what that is? Yeah, so SPACs, uh, special purpose acquisition companies, are basically public shells. These are empty companies that file to go public, and it's pretty it's relatively easy for them to get public and raise some money, and then they have they use that money to go and find a company to buy, a private company that they can take public and so it's kind of a, a bit of a bit of a reverse merger in that sense and that that has existed for a number of years uh, but in the last year that has become a you know very very hot and very hypey uh, kind of a thing to happen and there are a lot of very futuristic companies which have revenue very much in the future tense um, that are going public and a lot of them have been happened to be in the mobility space it works quite well because you can go and say, okay, you know, here's a business plan in four or five years. We expect to, you know, make a billion dollars profit. Here's how we're going to get there. Uh, for us to get there, we need to raise, you know, five hundred million dollars now to build a factory. Right. And so that that works well for for mobility type of deals because you have companies that need to build factories and you know manufacture things. Um, software is a lot easier to scale, but uh, hardware you need to you need to have physical factory to build something. So um, a lot of mobility companies. Um, have gone public that way. Uh, there are a few that refuse to, uh, that will, they're taking the more conventional path. But at the end of the day, when all the hype wears off, uh, you can think of SPACs as kind of a, an easier way, kind of an earlier stage, um, cheaper, faster way of companies going public. And, um, you know, after Enron and after the dot-com days and a number of things that happened, uh, there was a new compliance was passed, SOX compliance, Cyber Oxley. Um, and, 
what that means is it became more expensive and more tedious for companies to go public. So you can think of this as kind of uh, a little bit of a hack to make it easier for earlier stage companies to get to the public market. Got you. Okay. Interesting. So what, like how much quicker and how much cheaper is this route? Um, it can be, you know, half the price and, oh, and, wow. half, and, and then half the time, right? Um, okay. For a company to go public, you know, depending on, you know, what stage and how big their aspirations are, it could be an 18-month process, right? To, oh, to wow. Go so public really day. quick then. Yeah, I mean, for, for the SPAC, you know, in the beginning of the year, there was a lot of hype and, and these deals got done, you know, very, very quickly in a matter of days. Oh, wow. uh, we're coming back to kind of normal where it takes this company, you know, takes companies maybe six months to get through this to this uh, through this process with the SPAC from the initial agreement to due diligence and and their audits. You know, they're subject to the same audit requirements of any other public company. It takes some time to do that. Um, then you need to raise the pipe. So without getting too too much more technical, it, it you know normal process would be let's say four to six months, something like that. Okay, got you. So obviously we're going through a transition where we're depending less on oil and gas. And I think everybody kind of would probably say that's fair to say just because basically most car manufacturers have said by a certain date, we're not really making any more gas powered vehicles, but like where are we actually at in the space and the actual energy transition? Because it's very complicated. It takes a number of years. You have a lot of corporations and governments and countries and a bunch of kind of red tape that we need to get through. So where are we at or what are your thoughts on the state of the industry right now? So um, I just had on my podcast, I had Mate Rematz, uh, the CEO of uh, Rematz Technologies and now Bugatti Rematz. Um, and I got to tell you, when uh, I've known the company for about nine years uh, since okay. almost their beginning and I helped raise our Series B round back oh, in wow. 2017. Um, that was one of my kind of uh, cornerstone projects so far. Now that they're getting so so much more famous, but you know, I, I got to tell you is that at the time when we we're out there talking to investors about this this uh, electric hypercar company that provides um, technology to other car makers, it was not a given. You know, there was no belief in saying, oh, you know, it wasn't, you know, right now it's inevitable, right? Electric right. vehicles, you don't have to convince anybody that that's, that's the way everything is going. That's where it's going, period. Um, so that's, um, that part is easier. Um, but that said, we're only at something like 2% of passenger vehicles sold worldwide or electric. I expect that to change um, quite a bit in the next 12 months. You're going to see a lot of new electric vehicles come to market, and they're quite compelling. Um, but you have to keep in mind that most of the car sales are not the you know expensive luxury vehicles. They are much cheaper, you know, thirty thousand and under type of cars around the world. All right, you have to think outside of U.S. Uh, U.S. is only you know, I don't know 20, 25 percent of the the automotive market. So. Um, to make all that work, you need kind of the economies of scale in production in battery technology and all these things to bring down the cost. You also need to make it uh, easy to charge vehicles. Uh, so a lot of charging infrastructure is going in place. Um, if we look at um, China and Europe, you know, the two main things that have been driving this are government regulation and government incentives. Um, you know, at one point, Beijing um, city government said, you know what, we don't like the pollution, we're going to make all the taxis in Beijing electric. And they basically announced that and said, here's a timeline, it was a very short timeline, I don't remember the exact details now. 
but it was converted that way. Um, in Europe, there's been a lot of push and a lot of incentives towards uh, converting to electric. In US, we're about to see more of that with the Biden administration and the uh, infrastructure plan. And then all the infrastructure is going in as well, right? The infrastructure plan is, is planning to pay for 500,000 electric chargers. To give an idea, right now, we have about 50,000 or fewer uh, chargers oh, wow. in the US. So it's going to be a huge jump and uh, kind of ubiquitous charging everywhere. So people won't have an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, I can't charge my vehicle where I live. Therefore, I'm going to keep driving this, uh, you know, uh, dead dinosaur powered vehicle. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, the, the infrastructure piece is very, very important. And then there are a couple of other interesting things happening uh, in aviation because batteries are heavy. Uh, there's a lot of uh, companies looking at hydrogen, right? right. You're still, you still have an electric motor, but instead of flying with heavy batteries, you have hydrogen on board that generates electricity for that motor. And uh, there's some progress there, uh, but we're still probably a decade away from, from real you know, commercial flight on hydrogen, uh, maybe less. Okay. And then uh, same thing with long distance trucking. Uh, it makes sense uh, to use hydrogen in that case um, because you need long distances, you need a lot of power, uh, but you're also going from one point to another. And uh, so the infrastructure that you would need for fueling up hydrogen could be in certain places and you don't, it doesn't need to be ubiquitous. Uh, if you buy a Toyota Mirai now, which is a hydrogen powered car, I think the only one on the market, um, you're going to find out that uh, you're very limited in options on where you can fuel up. Sure. You basically could probably what, fuel up at home and maybe a couple other places in a, in a major big city. I don't think you'll be able to fuel up at home because you're not going to have a hydrogen uh, uh, yes, hydrogen station at home. That's the issue, right? You have to live close to a hydrogen station. The fill up is quick, right? It's just like pumping gas, but yeah. um, but you're very limited on, on where you can get it. Um, the other thing, the last thing I'll mention on this is um, working with companies like Hyperloop TT. Um, that's... Um, that's kind of next generation, right? We're talking about, um, you know, very efficient uh, electric transport at the speed of airplanes uh, on the ground. And you're talking about from city center to city center, instead of going to airports, going through security and all that, like we're dealing with now. Um, you know, it's a few years out, but it's not as far as people think. It could be as soon as about three years from now, you'll be uh -huh. taking your first rides in a Hyperloop. Interesting. That fast, hey? That was going to mm -hmm. be my next question, actually, because... Like, I feel like, yeah, with like something like the Hyperloop and, and potentially maybe other forms of, of transit outside of the traditional automobile, we could really see um, other ways to get around, right? Like potentially even like almost like drone type things that are could carry like a passenger, or a couple passengers maybe around different cities. Like, do you see stuff like that? Kind of like Jetsons type stuff or... Or what are your predictions for the kind of immediate future? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are constrained by regulations, right? So, um, you know, you're not going to see a bunch of VTOLs flying around tomorrow. Um, the companies that are going to go out fa uh, first are going to be essentially flying within the regulations of helicopter flight. Okay. And they're going to be piloted, right? That's that's the first things you'll see out there. They'll, you know, you're going to be able to change one variable at a time. That variable will be that it's a it's an electric battery electric um vertical takeoff and landing you know thing call it whatever you want um you know but it will it will take off like a helicopter and some of them have rotating uh fixed wings that will then fly as efficient as uh you know the reason airplanes fly long distances is they're a lot more efficient shape right. uh, than helicopters uh so you want that vertical takeoff then you have rotating um rotating propellers that will pull you forward essentially 
and use lift off a wing. Um, so you'll see those. Uh, there's an interesting company in Australia. I'm not sure how far out of um, out of stealth they are, but I spoke with them just literally yesterday, and they are launching a single seater racing kind of maybe six or ten feet off the ground at uh, 200 miles an hour um, races in these pods that look like they came right out of um, you know Star Wars. That's cool. Um, and and their idea is to launch with that and then eventually offer this as kind of a, uh, a an expensive toy, kind of a hypercar type of price point. But imagine you have a hypercar that flies um, at that speed. So uh, very cool things happening. It's just going to take a lot of time. You know, one thing that's constrained as far as things in the air is that we're still working on a ninety-year-old you know radar-based, um, human-based air traffic control system. And the way you know, I like to point out that first of all, there's no there's no rush. There's nothing that goes fast in the aviation industry. Right. As far as adoption of new technology, it took like ten years for GPS to be accepted as kind of a primary, most reliable device. Wow. But um, what has to happen is that we need to go to an uh, automated satellite-based air traffic control before we can put tens of thousands of little things flying around, you know, complex airspace. In Bay Area, we have uh, you know we have four overlapping international airports and a military airport. Very complicated airspace. Uh, I talk about it because I, I have some seat time. I've, I've flown airplanes. I've learned to fly airplanes. That's cool. So it, it's very complicated um, thing to do. Uh, you're going to see some some things you know flying in other places that are not so complex. You might see uh, autonomous delivery drones that are pulling heavier weight before they pull passengers. Um, but it's just going to take time. People have to be patient. Sure. So you honestly think that something like the Hyperloop or some of these delivery drones are only three, five, maybe even 10 years out? Uh, the Hyperloop, I can tell you from firsthand experience because I'm involved with a company called Hyperloop TT, which is the first company that was organized to commercialize the Hyperloop concept back in 2013. Um, I would say, um, yeah, it just depends on some funding, some government participation, you know, and, and, but the technology is pretty much there. Technology wow. is be ready to be integrated, uh, very efficient. These, the Hyperloop TT at least will generate more power than it uses, uh, because the entire tubes will be covered with photovoltaics and they have a very efficient, uh, propulsion system. That's a kind of a active maglev. So uh, that I can talk about. Um, on the aviation side, um, I think it's just going to take long because regulation is going to take long. Right. The technology is getting there. We're okay. starting to see some first test flights. Uh, NASA just last week was testing Joby. Um, the uh, Joby is probably the most, you know, the best funded uh, EV toll, and they're probably the first ones that uh, got started. They're a 10, 10 or eleven year old company now. So, wow. um, you know, it, they've been working on it for a long time. Technology is getting there, and now it's a matter of, of getting all of the um, all of the uh, everything else lined up, you know, as far as regulations and how this business will actually work. Sure. So, on the Hyperloop company that you mentioned, have they signed any cities, or, or are they working with any cities right now to actually start building something in the next few years, or is it still too early on that? Uh, they have they have agreements that they've announced uh, with a number of different countries, um, probably over ten. I'm I'm trying wow. to think what what's what I can talk about publicly and what I can't. Yeah, yeah, no, um, that's fair. Okay, so it would yeah. it's actually happening then. It's definitely happening. Um, there is a there is a um, there was a feasibility study even published for the for the Great Lakes region okay. um, about a year and a half ago, or a little more now, and uh, it's taking next steps, which is the environmental um, feasibility study, um, and this is basically for a particular route. 
um, to go from from Chicago to Cleveland to Pittsburgh. So that's that's wow. what we're talking about there. Yeah, That'd even be really in the U.S. Yeah, Very yeah. Cool. Imagine going Chicago to to uh, you know to Pittsburgh in under an hour, and from city center to city center. Yeah, that that'd be wild, right? Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on that I've read a bit about over the years is um, where, and obviously with Bezos and Richard Branson just kind of going to the edge of space there, like actually having um, either some sort of like supersonic flights or where you you go like you leave Earth's atmosphere a little bit and then kind of come back so you could basically go to like like New York to Tokyo in you know few hours and kind of commute like do, do you think some sort of like kind of light space travel is in our near future or are we very far away from that uh, i think it's a calculation of i mean safety and energy use right if you have you know it's, it it takes an incredible amount of energy whatever energy you use and i'm not a rocket scientist sure. but it takes an incredible amount of energy to get out, uh, to, to go that far into space, right? You can see how big the rockets are to just have a small payload that goes out there. So um, sure, can they shoot somebody and then land them on the other side of the world? Um, put them into like a small orbit? Yeah, they could probably do that now. But it's going to be a question of, uh, you know, what kind of emergency do you need to spend that kind of fuel to right. get across the world. There's much more efficient ways of getting there in a reasonable amount of time. What's interesting is uh, the work being done on you know, replacing what used to be the Concorde uh, with uh, much faster cross-Atlantic flights. What's preventing that is a sonic boom, right? That's the reason that, the, that it could only fly over water because it's very, very loud. Sonic boom is not just once, that's, that's how you hear it. But it's a, you know, when, when something's going faster than speed of sound, it's a continuous noise that follows it, uh, you know, at the ground level, right, and all around, and it's incredibly disruptive—not just inconvenience for us hearing it, but for animals, for a lot of other things. So uh, there is now research. Uh, I think NASA is doing it on creating different shapes that will lessen that sonic boom, uh, the 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 strength of it. And if you can apply that, it's just essentially a very very long airplane, right? So you have this air pressure that that gets uh, dissipated over a much longer shape. Um, if you can take those physical principle, principles and apply them towards a big passenger plane and uh, fly that across, you know, across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, and if you make it quieter, you can fly coast to coast and it's not going to be an impact uh, when you're flying over land. So those things are, are really cool and um, that would be a pretty, you know, much more reasonable cost than launching five people in a rocket to land them on the other side of the world, you know, a few hours faster. No, I, that's that's really cool. Yeah, like I, I think... It seems like we're kind of at like the golden age or like the beginning of the golden age of all this stuff. Is, is that fair to say? I think, yeah, we're definitely in this transition point right now. Um, I would say there is um, there's something really interesting happening, especially with like Hyperloop. Hyperloop is a completely new form of transportation. Right. And, you know, you, you know, the audience, you guys will have to forgive me that I'm such a proponent. I'm a big believer. I've been working with these guys for a couple of years now. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a new paradigm, right? Um, right? And it gives you a new alternative. And, you know, you have things like, for example, in France, there's a law that says that if there's a train alternative, then there should not be a kind of a regional flight. Um, and they're trying to, you know, a flight, you know, it's very visible, but at the end of the day, it doesn't, 
Uh, statistically, it doesn't pollute as much as other sectors. Actually, transportation as a whole, you know, we saw with COVID, uh, half of transportation went away overnight, and we only had five percent reduction in in um, in, in uh, emissions worldwide. Uh, if somebody wants to save the planet, uh, we should think about eating less meat, because right. uh, c- uh, cattle production is the third biggest polluter after U.S. and China <laughs> as countries. Right. Uh, so that that is a tangent, but um, no, I think we're we're we are in a very exciting time because we have a couple of things coming together, and it's a it's kind of a melt of digital and physical worlds, uh, where we have artificial intelligence. You know, we have enough processing power and techniques now to where artificial intelligence and automation uh, that's that's driven by it will start making a much bigger impact on our lives. Um, if we think about um, you know this, is, we're in the middle of a, the next industrial revolution, really. And, and what's going to happen at the end is we're going to have a lot of automation at the end of it. Whereas first industrial revolution was 80 years. Second one was about 65 years. This one we're going through in a matter of one generation, about 20 years. And we're wow. right in the middle of it. So uh, it's an exciting time to be alive because the next 10 years will be bigger changes in the last 50 as far as technology and, and capability and, and economics and everything else. What that also means is that a lot of people will not may, be able to make the transition. You're not going to take somebody who has maybe a high school education or didn't finish high school and is, you know, making a living with their muscles, uh, driving a truck or or working, you know, in construction or what have you. There are many, many people that do that. Um, you're not going to be able to retrain them to be software developers overnight. So what do you do? How do you support them when those jobs go away? I mean, we have a preview in America. You know, a lot of the manufacturing jobs uh, went first to cheaper, cheaper countries. Um, and now they're, they might be coming back, but they're going to be highly automated, right? So, right. you know, maybe manufacturing will, will come back to the U.S., um, but you're not going to have uh, a thousand people. You're, you're going to have, you know, 10 people running a factory where a thousand people used to work before. So, you know, these, these open up some, some really interesting political questions and economic questions on, you know, how do we do, how do, we do this? How do we support people? Uh, because the preview is, you know, you can see the strife in the last, you know, half decade in this country. A lot of people are pissed off and they're feeling like they're falling through the bottom of the economy where others are really uh, doing well. And then we get, uh, you know, clowns like Trump uh, who are taking advantage of people who uh, who are unfortunately kind of on the on the other side of this equation. So that that's, uh, you know, that's something to think about for sure. No. Yeah. Interesting. Very, very cool. So I'm curious because you've obviously been an entrepreneur now you're on the investment side. You've kind of been wore both hats and you've mentored a ton. You've been in the space a lot. What advice do you give to people that are that are looking to be an entrepreneur from kind of from your entrepreneurial side and kind of from the VC side? Because I think there's not a lot of VCs that have been an entrepreneur, right? And I think it's rare when somebody like yourself has been both and can understand both sides and then can give advice to really help both sides, really. Yeah, I would say a lot of actually VCs have operational experience. Uh, Investment bankers are a little bit more transactional and and more kind of theoretical, let's say, or they come from big business maybe. Sure. But uh, a lot of VCs, you know, you have to build kind of a truffle nose and and do some pattern recognition on what works and what doesn't. And you'll find a lot of, uh, you know, it's kind of you, you're, you're a player on the, on the field. And then at some point you retire and become a coach. That's kind of uh, tech entrepreneurship and, and venture capital. Sure. But uh, my advice to anybody that, you know, 
who is looking at entrepreneurship as their career path, um, you know, it, it's important to not just be in love with the idea of entrepreneurship, but find a market-based problem that you can solve. Um, find something that you can work on um, and do your research. Don't, don't just jump on the next idea because if it's going to work, you're going to dedicate a big chunk of your life to it. Right? People forget that it takes you know, a couple of years to figure out if anybody cares about, you know, it takes a year to take any idea and to, and to build anything, right? to research anything. Sure. It takes a couple of years for, anybody, you know, for you to figure out if anybody cares about what you built. Uh, so that's two years of your life right there. And, and you know, if, if it's working, if it's kind of working, you're going to kind of muddle along for another year or two or more. If it's really working, you know, that's a decade of your life you're going to give to this business. And you'll be pretty damn sure that this is something you're passionate about that you want to work on um, and dedicate your life to. Um, you know, a lot of people forget about that. And the other thing too is that if you know if if it's worth doing, if it's not if it's not something that's already been solved or figured out, it's going to be very difficult, and it's going to have a very high failure rate, right? And so think of it as a science experiment. You have this thesis, you're going to embark on trying to solve this problem, um, and at some point. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're either going to solve it or not. And it's going to be very difficult for you. Um, and for a lot of entrepreneurs, their, their sense of identity gets tied to the success or failure of the company. Sure. And they really don't have any other hobbies. They don't have a life. Um, and they really get, you know, emotionally connected to it. And if it doesn't work out, they get depressed. You know, I know a lot of people that have gone through this. Um, I've gone through this myself, quite honestly, is that when it's not working and you have nothing else going, uh, it, it's pretty crappy, uh, pretty crappy feeling. So it's important to have that kind of separation. It's important to do your homework and make sure you're working on something that you know the market cares about, that has a future, and that you have you know you're you're confident that you have the right solution, and even more importantly, the right team to go after and, and you know solve that problem, not just an idea. Nobody cares about ideas. It's all about execution. No, I I 100% agree with you. So you you mentioned your book earlier. I, I want to talk about it briefly because. It's obviously been doing really well. So, what's the book called? Who's it for? And uh, let's and let's talk a bit about that. The book is called Accelerated Startup, and um, it is available. You know, Amazon audiobook, uh, hardcover, softcover, whatever you like, whatever your flavor. Um, it's already been translated, as I mentioned, into in Ukrainian. Um, and you know, the book is for uh, for people who are about to be or already are entrepreneurs and are thinking about especially building a first startup and what i've done is you know i've gone around the world i've, I've spoken and you know i've keynoted in over 30 countries and i've met wow. many thousands of entrepreneurs and everybody thinks that they have the unique unique problems but in reality it's it's the same problems over and over again with a different accent so uh what i was trying to do is save the first couple of years of pain and suffering for entrepreneurs and give them the answers to a lot of these obvious questions they're going to have and uh the book you know, kind of walks through from idea to product to company kind of the, this whole this whole process of how do you go from from something that you're thinking about or or you're in love with entrepreneurship and you don't even have an idea how do you find an idea how do you build a team um you know how do you talk to customers how do you raise money um, how do you think about the exit? Uh, if you if it if it's not working out, what do you do? If it's working out, you know, and and you've done well, what should you do next? Should you mentor the next generation? So kind of soup to nuts, start to finish. And um, with the book, actually, something a little bit more current. Uh, as I mentioned before, we hit record. Um, we're launching a cohort-based course, a five-week course on pitching, which is one of the key skill sets 
uh, that entrepreneurs need to have uh, when they go out there and start talking about their idea and their their product and their company to investors, to potential teammates, uh, employees, to uh, customers, they need to be able to, to pitch that idea and, and get the passion in there. So we're launching a call, uh, course called Pitching Like a Boss. It, it comes from a uh, from the book and also from workshops that I've been doing with the same name for many years now. Um, and that's launching soon. So that's, oh, that, that's, that's my, my part of giving back. Yeah. No, that's great. Because I think as, as somebody that's done pitching before, not only is it really hard to come up with a good deck and you you spend obviously hours and hours doing this, but then, you know, refining it and getting rejected and then just being nervous about pitching. And like, there's so many things that go into that. So it's it's cool that you're you're putting that out there. And, uh, you know, I think that's a really good resource for people. Yeah, we're, we're hoping it's going to help a lot of people get their ideas across better and faster and be more successful, quite frankly. Um, a lot of times it's, it, it's you know, you're dealing with an audience that just doesn't have the you don't have their attention for long and you need to make an impact and get an emotional response and get them to want to learn more. So we walk through that. Uh, we walk through even things like body language, very important in, in any kind of presentation and what kind of message you send there. So that's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're excited about launching that and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. It's, um, you know, we, we can put the uh, links and all that, um, into, into the show notes, but, uh, golem.net is my website. You can, you can learn a little bit more there. Perfect. And you also host a podcast called Accelerated. What do you cover there and when, what types of guests do you have on that? So I launched Accelerated last year uh, during uh, during COVID, as many people have launched, launched podcasts. And the idea was to kind of highlight um, some friends and, and some folks I don't know well uh, who are successful entrepreneurs and to talk about some really important topics and, and kind of teach from their experience. Um, we're doing a second season right now, which is all focused on the future of mobility. So I've interviewed um, people like Stefan Kraus, who was a CFO of BMW and CEO of Canoe, took that company public via SPAC. Um, I have a CEO of Hyperloop TT, uh, Andres de Leon as well. Uh, and the la latest episode that just came out this week is Mate Rematz, um, the founder and CEO of Rematz Automobili and now Bugatti Rematz. So uh, just kind of walking through that and, and talking about the little history um, about what they've gone through in building these companies, what they've learned, what their thoughts are on the on the future of mobility. Sure, very cool. So we're, we're kind of coming to the end, but I, is there any advice that you always give to people that you, you maybe just you've learned over the years that you seem to no matter who they are you you give that advice to kind of close out the show so the way i close out my show is that i ask uh, i ask my guests if uh, you know what advice they would give them uh, their 18 year old self or just starting their career sure and i'll, I'll do the same you know you know, for entrepreneurs, it's very important, um, this element of kind of having a healthy separation between your sense of identity and the projects you're working on. Um, for a lot of people, you know, this kind of goes into the mental health category. Um, it's very difficult to build startups and it's a grind and you need to find ways to stay motivated uh, for many, many hours, for many, many months with no vacations for years sometimes. Uh, it's important to really think about what you're working on, where you're investing your non-refundable lifetime and um, think twice, think 10 times about what you're about to embark on. And if things are not working out, you know, don't be afraid to cut bait and just uh, do something else because you're never going to get that time back in your life. Um, 
that that's really important and um, just you know go for big big problems it takes as much time to work on a small uh, small problem and small company as it does to work on a really big one so so go for go for it and vcs will tell you that you know work for bigger work on bigger bigger problems bigger ideas something that can become a platform something that can you know be worth billions that can change a billion lives you know that that's what i would say is uh, go for those kind of things no i i think that's actually really good advice but Sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about Drake Star, the podcast, the book, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. So you can learn about Drake Star at drakestar.com. And uh, you can look up uh, Drake Star on LinkedIn. We're quite active there. Uh, we have lots of announcements and, and reports and things we publish. So if you're interested in the sectors that we are active in, uh, we're always looking for for great new people uh, to join our team as well. We've grown, I think, 50% in the last year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm growing quick. And then um, as far as uh, everything about me, you can learn on my website, golom.net, G-O-L-O-M-B.net. And uh, there's information about the course there as well that's going to be coming uh, this fall. Um, would love to hear from you. I'm also on Twitter, Vitaly G. Uh, not super active there, but uh, always uh, try to respond uh, to folks who are looking for, uh, for ideas and, and answers and help. Perfect. Well, Vitaly, I really appreciate you again taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com.